You're listening to another great message from Northside Community Church. Guys, look, even though it was so long ago, I can still remember this routine, uh, the Sunday routine. I, I was just in kindergarten, just a little boy. My brother was younger than me. My sister hadn't even come along yet. And every Sunday morning, we would uh, be uh, pulled out of bed quite early, made ready in our Sunday best. And uh, we would uh, take the drive, which I, I think in those days was about 15 minutes from Glenbrook, the first little town on the Blue Mountains, just above Lapston. And we'd drive down to Penrith. And uh, here, here we were, just two little boys, and we would pull up outside the Country Women's Association Hall. Uh, I think it was in the main street of Penrith, as I recall. And we would meet with about eight or ten other people, our little family of four. And the first thing that they would do, we'd have to clean out all the, all the, all the beer bottles from the party the night before. And I remember one of my jobs was to kind of get rid of all the cigarette ash and then the cigarette butts. Uh, obviously, this little group of people, the pioneer members, the foundation members of what would become the Penrith Church of Christ, obviously they'd negotiated with the Country Women's Association a hiring contract that didn't include cleaning. And that would have saved money because they didn't have any money, right? So once that was all cleared out, then we'd set up a, a table, just a little card table with the communion elements and uh, a semicircle, I think as I recall, the kids who were involved, my brother, my, myself, a couple of others, we would go across and they'd tell us Bible stories in one corner. And then there'd be a couple of hymns sung and either my dad or a man by the name of Mr Ellis, whose wife died this week, by the way. I, I couldn't believe the coincidence. Uh, I got a, a message this week from her daughter. She died. The other foundation couple uh, the Ellis's, uh, this lady died at 101 years of age this week, uh, still praising God and still living a triumphant Christian life. And so this was the scene there in Penrith every, every Sunday. That little group went on to buy a block of land up in David Street and, and they built a little hall and, and we were there. The Agnews were there for that. And I can remember as a little boy now in primary school, shellacking. Is that, is that a, that's the only DIY term I know. Is that right? Shellacking? Shellacking, we're getting some nods. Shellacking the boards. That was my task as a little boy. And uh, now, of course, in David Street, Penrith, there is a quite a, a nice building. They built that long after we left, but that was, that's the Penrith Church of Christ. And so we were foundation members, my family, of, of that particular church. And friends, look, this was my earliest recollection of church as a little boy. Very small, very casual, very intimate, but with great vision with incredible passion and with deep commitment and a powerful sense of destiny. That's what these people had. And then the church where I spent my latter primary and early to mid-teenage years was not much different. It was Wiley Park Church of Christ, as most of you know. And, uh, you know, I'd not been in a church with a full-time minister till I was 16. We went to Perth, South Perth Church of Christ, very large church. I'd not known a full-time minister until I was 16. Up at Penrith, we were served by the laity, either those in the church or we'd bring people up from Sydney. At Wiley Park, we were served by students from the Woolwich Bible College, the forerunner of ACOM. And I found out in years later, they would trial students at, at our church. If you could survive Wiley Park Church of Christ and its eldership, you could survive anywhere. That was the word, which I didn't realise at the time. 
that would explain some of the meetings I ever heard in our lounge room uh, as I was trying to get to sleep. Uh, they, they were a bit of a squabbling bunch at t- in their worst moments, great bunch in their, in their better moments. But, you know, friends, sometimes I envy people raised in a multi-staff church or people who were, who were raised in a, in a well-known cathedral or some large church somewhere who, or who sat under the feet of some renowned preacher or teacher. I sometimes envy those people. But then I think, you know, I'm really blessed. No, I think I'm really blessed. I'm really pleased to think I didn't grow up in churches like that. Because in the early formative years of my life, I learned some very important lessons about the invincibility of the church. And I learned this. The invincibility of the church of Jesus Christ is not dependent on certain individuals, the quality of the buildings or the size of the congregation. I mean, some churches depend heavily on very charismatic personalities and they build large crowds around them. We've seen this over the years, but we've also seen some of those crumble, haven't we? particularly those associated with certain tele-evangelists. And that's a sad thing. Some churches have built impressive complexes and, and they have outstanding infrastructure and organisational systems and, and they think that those edifices are going to last forever. Only to find that in some cases, those very edifices are converted into cafes and uh, art galleries, corporate offices, even residences. Adelaide, the city I'm going to, the city of churches, is full of these sort of churches. And Sydney has its own fair share. I remember years ago going to a, a family in the, uh, the foothills of Adelaide and they had converted a Baptist church into a house. And it was really done in a very creative way. I don't know if Bill Watson's here today. I, uh, Bill, are you here today? Bill, you would have been impressed. Bill Watson, no, He's counting the money. Very important ministry, that is. Um, wow. <laughs> Please tell him I mentioned it. Um, Bill would have been really impressed because they'd really utilised some of the features of the original church and they'd, they'd kind of built these into their design. Like they utilised the foyer. That was their little entrance area and they had, you know, kind of coat, hacks and, uh, coat racks and so on. And then they'd uh, use the baptistry. They'd built the, 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 their new bathroom around the baptistry and they'd turn that into a spa or something. And they had, a, because of the high ceilings, they had this walkway that went along a good part of the building overlooking the living areas as you made your way to the bedroom. It was very creatively done. But it was a, it was a Baptist, it had been formerly a, a Baptist church. Well, that's the thing. Let's be real. Let's be real. Sometimes churches are sold and demolished for very good reasons. If somebody had been standing out here in Pole Lane all those years ago when I stood and watched the original building on this site demolished with those big crunching machines who just munched the whole thing up over a series of days, if somebody had been watching that, they would have thought, oh gosh, they're, they're going out of business. Poor church. Another church goes under. Of course, nothing could have been further from the truth. That was just one, one building that was dying in order to give birth to a new complex that was a reflection of the new reinvigorated vision of the church. Friends, the invincibility, the survival power of the church, really, when you think about it, is as obvious. It's as self-evident as it could possibly be. Here it is. The invincibility of the church is directly dependent on the promise of Jesus made in his decisive and defining statement 
I will build my church. That's the heart of the invincibility of the church of Jesus Christ. He made that statement. He declared that promise 2,000 years ago. And today it is estimated that one third of the entire world's population self-identifies as a Christian in one form or another. And many nations around the world are growing in their numbers of Christians faster than at any other time in human history. That's 2014. Now, we in the West, of course, we're surprised by news like that. We're startled by news like that as we lament the closure of churches and declining church attendances. But when we take the big picture in, when we have the big picture in mind and we go to information like that provided from the Centre of Global Christianity, it's a, a research group based in Boston in the United States, we discover a number of startling facts. Here's a research organisation that lists the top 20 countries where Christianity is growing at a rapid rate. And they list the countries that have, that have the highest percentage, the highest percentage increase of Christians in any given year. They did this on an annual basis. In the list they produced a couple of years ago, 19 of the 20 countries were in Asia and Africa. 11 of the countries on this, by the way, no countries on that list from either Europe or North America. 19 were from Asia and Africa. 11 of the countries on this top 20 list are Muslim majority countries where Christianity is growing at a rapid rate, but the dominant faith is Islam. And of course, it's in some of those countries where some of the worst violence against Christians takes place tragically. These are the situations where militant uh, Islamic groups are fiercely resisting the influence of Christianity. And the dynamic at work is a bit like Martin Marty, the American theologian, wrote many years ago when he said, it's hard to be a Christian where it's easy to be a Christian. Like in in a country like Australia where nominalism reigns. You're into Christianity? Cool. Don't don't try and convert me, but that's okay. That's your... But it's hard to be a Christian where it's easy to be a Christian, but it's easy to be a Christian where it's hard to be a Christian. Because you're either in or you're out. You're either identified as a person of the way or you're not. There's no, no room for nominalism in some of these countries where persecution reigns supreme. For instance, in Nigeria, there are 80 million Protestants, which is more than the number of Protestants in Germany where the Protestant Reformation began. There's a startling statistic. And friends, a century ago, 100 years ago, two-thirds of the world's Christians were, were in Europe. Today, according to the Centre of Global Christianity, it's about 25%. And those of us who've been to Europe probably are amazed by that statistic because Europe, most parts of Europe seem pretty lacklustre when it comes to the Christian faith. Incidentally, the number one country on that list where Christianity is growing at the fastest rate in the world is Nepal. And I don't have any further information as to why that might be, but I find that very interesting. Now, here in Australia, many churches are struggling. And there's evidence all around of the increasing secularisation of society. You'd agree with that, I'm sure. Um, But, and it is a big but, but despite despite all that, we have in Australia today the biggest churches we've ever had. 
Churches that are attracting thousands of people. My daughter goes to one in Adelaide. We'll probably end up having some contact with that church, at least in the opening months of our return to Adelaide. A, a, a dynamic church in the southern suburbs. And these churches, some of the churches in Australia today are the largest that we've ever seen, ever. And, and, and there are smaller churches as well where passion and, and a desire to transform their community well and truly more than compensates for any lack of numbers. Friends, I've made a study over the years of my ministry. I've made a study of what makes churches effective in ministry. And I've come to a number of conclusions as to why some churches thrive and some churches barely survive or they die. And so the elements or the characteristics which ensure the invincibility of the church of Jesus Christ. There are many. But for my purposes today, predictably perhaps, I've narrowed it down to three. (laughs) Could have been four, but I've narrowed it down to three. The first one is this, the preeminence of Jesus. The preeminence of Jesus. Once a church loses sight of the fact that it's all about Jesus, that church is in peril. Ministry is not about egos. It's not about influence. It's not about position and power and prestige. It's not about buildings, programs, events, slick advertising. These can certainly be a means to an end. And I feel very, very blessed, very blessed that I've had access to these sort of features more than most have in my ministry. I'm very aware of that. But friends, no, ministry is about the preeminence of Jesus. The truth and the power of the good news that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. I love Paul's testimony. We looked at it a few Sundays ago here in the morning service. In 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 and following, this is from the experience he had in Athens. Remember, it could be said that just momentarily in Athens, as he sort of mixed it with the intellectual, intellectuals and the intelligentsia, it could be said that maybe momentarily, perhaps he lost sight of the preeminence of Jesus, maybe. And so he went to Corinth as a slightly broken man. And look what he says in his opening letter to the Corinthians. He says, when I came to you, my friends, to preach God's secret truth, I did not use big words and great learning. For while I was with you, I made up my mind to forget everything except Jesus Christ and especially his death on the cross. So when I came to you, I was weak and trembled all over with fear and my teaching and my message were not delivered with with skillful words of human wisdom, but with convincing proof of the power of God's spirit. Your faith then, does not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Wow. There's a series in itself. Do you get that? Your faith does not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Friends, that's at the heart of the invincibility of the church, as is the promotion of growth. Not just numerical growth, but growth in all areas, service, compassion, spirituality, evangelism, You see, friends, in promoting growth, a church embraces values like inclusiveness, openness, grace, forgiveness. You embrace growth. You embrace all of those beautiful qualities. In promoting growth, a church is saying, among other things, we're not so much interested in where you've been, we're more interested in where you're going. We're more interested in your potential in Jesus Christ. We're more interested in your eternal destination. 
And that's in sharp contrast to the narrow, self-righteous, judgmental kind of church that can find themselves stagnating and in many cases dying. You've got to have a grace-filled church. This is all part of growth. Jesus said, I will build my church. I will build my church. He didn't say, I'll maintain it, I'll sustain it, I'll pause it, I'll placate it. He said, I will build it. And that has always been a huge factor in my personal mandate for ministry. And my prayer is that Northside will always have that. That commitment to grow in every way as a, as a, as a vital part of its DNA. The belief that, you know, God hasn't finished with us yet. That's it. God hasn't finished with this church yet. That's the, at the heart of growth. So what do we got? The preeminence of Jesus, the promotion of growth, and the third element, ensuring the invincibility of the church of Jesus Christ, the priority of vision, the priority of vision. I described a godly vision a couple of weeks ago as an image of a situation or a scenario that will facilitate a more powerful movement of God's spirit. It's a Graham Agnew original. It's, that's why it's fairly simple, but it suits my purposes. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an image of a, of a situation or a scenario that will facilitate a more powerful movement of God's spirit. Friends, Northside has always been characterised by vision. Going right back to those early discussions that took place with the three churches that were part of the original merger, to the vision of the founding pastor, Jay Bassick, who chose with others this, the original building on this site. And of course, the great privilege, the amazing privilege that's been afforded to me was the opportunity to be such an integral part of the next stage of Northside's journey toward its true potential in Jesus Christ. That is in the establishment of this ministry centre, this, this conference centre. But here's another big but. Under Sam's ministry, you will all have the opportunity to explore the next stage of God's vision for Northside. And that will doubtless mean finding ways to even more effectively minister to the ever-changing needs of this area, of this city. It will doubtless mean discovering ways by which Northside can have a greater impact for God nationally, globally. It's the world in which we live. Churches have global influence. Even a church like Northside is happening already through our electronic means and our multimedia. And here's the thing. And wow, I want to be around for this. I'll come back especially. Um, one day, one day God's unfolding vision for Northside is going to mean looking at ways to create ministries and support existing causes from funds generated from a debt-free Northside Community Church and Conference Centre. Can you imagine what that, will, what, what, what that will look like? And I'll come back on the, on the day that we declare that we're debt-free. And uh, <laughs> I'll just sort of slink in the back row there somewhere. And, uh, <laughs> and some bright new young person will say, oh, hello, you're visiting? And I'll, I'll say, well, yeah, kind of. Uh, <laughs> It's happened to me in previous churches I've been to. Um, some of you know that I went to the South Perth Church of Christ a number of years ago. And uh, I snuck in the back. I was there for a conference, not speaking, just we we're having a conference the next day. And um, I sat right behind a girl whom I recognised straight away. 
And uh, for, for no other reason than I just in my youth group, I had no relationship with her. Uh, I, I did with her sister, but that's another story. Um, and, and I knew exactly. So, so during, the break, during the little mingle time, this girl turned around and said, oh, hello, you're visiting. Welcome to South Perth. And I said, uh, <laughs> it's good to see you again, Lee. And she sort of went, what? And I said, I, I, was, I, I, said, I, I know you, Lee. And she said, uh, this is my husband, Bruce. Uh, and, I, and I said, yeah, I, I, know, I know you too, Bruce. And she said, what, what, what are you talking about? Who are you? And this is, I said, uh, I said I'm, I'm Graham Agnew, Lee. And this is her opening words. She said, oh, my God, I knew a Graham Agnew once. <laughs> and, and I said, like, that's me, Lee. She said, oh, my gosh. Oh, my God. We worked out we hadn't seen each other for 32 years. 32 years, right? And she'd gone a little greyer and she was a little heavier and I'd... I'd uh, put on a lot of weight. I was a, um, what they used to call a six-stone weakling in those days. Uh, so, and, and, you know, hair was receding. And so we had a great time. She were both grandparents. Well, no, we weren't grandparents at that stage, but we talked about our families and kids and that. So, look, that's what'll happen. That'll be a great day when this church, that was always part of the long-range vision, that when debt is cleared, this will be an incredible Centre of revenue raising to do incredible things for God, both within our ministry framework and supporting other causes. Gosh, friends, long for that day. It's going to be fantastic. Now, you know, there are, there are cynical people who would say, well, if Jesus said he's going to build his church, there are obviously a lot of churches that aren't part of the construction process, right? <laughs> and I'd have to agree. I'd say, yeah, yeah you know what? That's right. That is right. I, I, I fully agree. I wouldn't try to defend that. But you know, there are many local churches and church organisations that are either dead or dying. It's just a reality. Or they're only a shadow of what they could be. They hardly qualify as examples of the invincibility of the Christian church. But friends, look, that's no poor reflection on our Lord. That's no poor reflection on Jesus at all. Not one bit. It is, in my experience, however... It is a clear indication that somewhere along the line, there's been a drift from the preeminence of Christ. Somewhere on the line, there's been a failure to promote and work for growth. Somewhere on the line, there's been a loss of vision. I I can't think of an example of a declining church or Christian organisation that hasn't been affected by one or all three of those things. And I'm not talking about size here. Let me say again, one of the most effective churches I've ever worshipped in was in Pune, India. Uh, A a town, a a small city, um, a few hours drive from Mumbai or Bombay. And I met with those Christians in a flat. Uh, We were crammed in. I can can still remember how hot it was and humid. Everybody was sweating. And we were about 30 people into this very, very tiny flat. That was their church in the midst of a highly militant, aggressive Hindu environment. Friends, that was a great church. That was a fantastic church that exhibits all of these characteristics. So it has nothing to do with size. Jesus said, on this rock foundation, I will build my church and not even death will be able to overcome it. There's a, there's a story in my book. Oh, please forgive that shameless self-promotion. Uh, 
But there's a groundbreaking book that is, uh, has just been released on the market. <laughs> Stop it, please. Now, if, you, if, you've, if, you, if you've read this story, you'll know the one that I'm talking about, but it's the best one I've got to illustrate the invincibility of the church and involves my visit to Salisbury Cathedral uh, all those years ago in England. And um, we went there, I was leading a tour to the Oberammergau Passion Play in Bavaria. And we went to Salisbury Cathedral because they were having a flower show. Normally, Graham Magnin doesn't go to flower shows, but when you're a tour leader, you have to go to a flower show. And I, when you got off the bus, I was just stoked with what we saw at Salisbury Cathedral. My goodness, what a magnificent cathedral that is. And many of you have seen it, I know, and just set in beautiful grounds. And as we went in, I noticed one thing. As I walked in, the guy actually clipped the little cord on the two little bollards, whatever, and as if to say, well, look, you know, you're the last one in. Oh, fair enough. It was a big crowd. There are hundreds of people in this. And the flowers were, I must admit, they were very nice, all sorts of arrangements. And over the PA came a voice. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Salisbury Cathedral. It is midday. It was midday. He said, we have a little tradition here at Salisbury Cathedral. This is the time when we, we like to pray. And you get sort of a bit of a ripple through the crowd and pray. What's, he said, no, no, you may be a Christian. You may be someone of another faith. Or you may be someone with no faith. But would you please just pause for a moment while we join in prayer. This is very special. It's very much a part of our tradition. He said, we've been doing it every day for 700 years. Whoa. The place really quietened down after that. And this guy just gave a simple prayer. And um, you could have heard a pin drop for minutes after that. And my mind raced. And I thought of all the things that must have happened around Salisbury Cathedral in 700 years. All the fightings, all the wars. I thought back to all the movies I've seen of all the, you know, Britons fighting each other. And Scottish and, you know, just crazy history over there. Uh, all, the, all the pestilences, all the plagues. But the point is the church never stopped praying. They never stopped praying praying. Now, you know what it's like in Europe. You go to a lot of cathedrals that seem very musky and very very ancient and very lifeless. Well, I went to the Salisbury Cathedral website this week and I was just pleasantly surprised. I was startled. Listen to this. This is off their website. Salisbury Cathedral's ambition is to be a beacon of confident open Christianity with a reputation for warmth and welcome, a willingness to engage with others. And they go on. They say, we want to be a church where people can encounter God. They want to be known for their emphasis on social justice and ministering to the needs of the community. Among their core values are integrity, generosity, compassion. An ancient cathedral. Sounds like a place where Jesus is central, doesn't it? Sounds like a place where vision is alive and well. Sounds like a place where growth and all that that means has been well and truly embraced. It is not a stagnant, musky old cathedral. Salisbury Cathedral is alive and well. They've not stopped praying for 700 years. Now, friends, there's a long-term historical example of the invincibility of the Christian church. Northside is a much more recent contemporary version of the invincibility of the church of Jesus Christ. And you, right now, all of us, have a part to play in our openness to God 
and our willingness to be receptive to the movement of his spirit, we have a part to play in that invincibility. Wow. This is, place, this is not dependent on people, personalities, not even dependent on buildings. It's dependent on you, your personal commitment and relationship with Jesus. Wow. What a privilege. What an enormous privilege to be members of the invincible church of Jesus Christ. It'll just keep going till he comes. Praise God for that. Let us pray.